So the good news is that I only have to get up at 3.30 in the morning five more times. Four more times. Four more times. The bad news is that I have a really big Greek exegetical paper that just keeps not writing itself. And I keep opening my computer thinking, surely you will have gotten something done by now. And it just keeps looking at me, not, not progressing, not doing itself. And I don't know how to change that. Uh, I'm really glad to see you. I've just been looking for, I'm just loving this so much. And I, I just... Thank you for coming and thank you for doing this study. Uh, I'm doing it along with you. And I was telling someone just a few minutes ago, you know, I wrote this content, but gosh, I'm seeing things that I didn't see even back when I wrote it. And I, I just find so much value in going through it slowly and picking it apart and taking our time. And I, my fervent prayer every day is that you are having a, a similar experience, just reaping the fruit that comes from just disciplined time in God's word, meeting with him and letting him speak. So let me pray and we'll get going. Heavenly Father, I just thank you. Oh God, we just thank you. I thank you for every woman in here, Lord, and the time that she's carved out of her schedule to spend with you and then to spend with other women and then just to sit under your teaching, Lord, the teaching of your word, God. So speak to us tonight, Lord, and let your words be the words that stick. God, tell us new things. Remind us of old things. Remind us that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we don't have to fear. We don't have to be anxious. We don't need to know what tomorrow holds when we remember that you're the one that holds it. And so God bless our time together tonight, Lord. We love you so very much. We lift this up in Jesus' name. Amen. So... Tonight, I want to talk about perspective. And there's this really interesting thing. I read about this in an article uh, a couple years ago, and I've been kind of captivated by it. And there's a reason. I get kind of weirdly obsessed with different things. Um, here's an example. Antarctica is one of them. I'm just a little bit strangely obsessed with Antarctica. I have plans to visit there someday. I don't know when. I don't know why, other than I just want to see it. Um, I have this picture that I would go out to the South Pole because you can cross-country ski out to the... There's an actual pole. looks like a barbershop pole. And I think, wouldn't it be cool to get out there and stand on the bottom-most point of the Earth and know that, like, to anyone looking at the Earth from far away, you're actually hanging upside down. And then how bizarre would it be to just jump? And, like, I mean, wouldn't that be fun? I told you it was weird. I'm also a little bit obsessed with outer space. I have no desire to go. I don't want to hop on Jeff Bezos' spacecraft or whatever. Um, I am very much a land lover, but I love studying it. I love pictures of it. I'm not into astronomy. I didn't take any astrology classes. I just like knowing space facts. And that's, that's the end of it. So here's one. I follow a lot of the astronauts on Instagram. I have too much time. That's not true. Um, so there's this thing that happens when astronauts go into space and then see Earth. 
all right? They've got a term for it. It's called the overview effect. And this first became coined back in 69 when Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin, and they all went to the moon. And they were so forward focused on the moon that it didn't really occur to them that they would be leaving their planet behind and actually seeing Earth from the first time away from Earth. And when that happened, it gave them such a paradigm shift that they became a little bit obsessed with the beauty of our planet and leaving it better than when they got there. And someone even wrote a book about it. Ron Guerin was on the International Space Station back in 2008, okay? So he had to hook himself to a big hose. I just wouldn't want to do this. And then, you know, he's in his space suit, and he's, like, walking out. And then you have to do this thing called a windshield wiper maneuver. I don't even know, but here's what it does. You fling yourself out, and you go over, and you go over to the other side, okay? No. Hard pass. When he hit the top of the ark, he saw Earth. And this is what he wrote. His book is called The Orbital Perspective. As I approached the top of this ark, it was as if time stood still, and I was flooded with both emotion and awareness. But as I looked down at the Earth, this stunning, fragile oasis, this island that's been given to us and that has protected all life from the harshness of space, a sadness came over me and I was hit in the gut with an undeniable sobering contradiction. In spite of the overwhelming beauty of this scene, serious iniquity exists on the apparent paradise we've been given. I couldn't help thinking of the nearly one billion people who don't have access to clean water to drink, the countless number who go to bed hungry every night, the social injustice, conflicts, and poverty that remain pervasive across the planet. Seeing Earth from this vantage point gave me a unique perspective. And part of this is the realization that we are all traveling together on the planet. And if we looked at the world from this perspective, we would see things differently. His book is called The Orbital Perspective. And I think this is what happened to Paul on the road to Damascus. I think that when he was traveling on that road, intending to break up churches and drag women and men and children out into the streets and to um, bring them back to Jerusalem in chains. And when Jesus Christ met him in the fullness of his glory, in his resurrected state, we don't know what Paul saw. But we know that he fell flat off his horse onto his face and he couldn't see for three days. And this glorious thing he saw spoke to him and gave him a mission. And I think that when those scales fell off of Paul's eyes, the magnitude of the beauty that he had seen and the hope of glory that he had made him look at the world with such a wild paradigm shift that all he could do for the rest of his life was preach Christ, preach Christ, preach Christ, preach Christ, preach Christ. And that's the thrust of the text that we're going through tonight. Paul has had a massive, massive paradigm shift. 
He had an overview effect. He had an orbital perspective, and he wants us to have it too. So last week we read the salutation. We read the greeting. We went into Paul's prayer. It's also his preliminary blessing. And now that he's getting to the body of his letter, now that he's getting to the meat, he is going to hit the ground running. He is going to explode out of those gates. And he's going to give us a glimpse of this eternal perspective that he wants the Philippian believers to have. Why does he want them to have this perspective? Because they are suffering. They are poor Many of them are going hungry. They are not accepted in social circles. They are living on the shame end of the honor shame spectrum. And he needs them to endure. And they need to have this perspective of Christ if they're going to endure. So what I want to do is I want to read through all of the texts that we're going to be walking through tonight. But I'm going to split it in half because we are walking through a lot. All right, let's see if I can get these to work. Nope. Yep. Okay. All right. Slide this this way. Okay. Paul writes, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that my situation has actually turned out to advance the gospel. The whole imperial guard and everyone else knows that I am in prison for the sake of Christ. And most of the brothers and sisters having confidence in the Lord because of my imprisonment now more than ever dare to speak the word fearlessly. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do so from love because they know that I am placed here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely because they think they can cause trouble for me in my imprisonment. What is the result? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is being proclaimed. And in this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. My confident hope is that I will in no way be ashamed. But with complete boldness, even now as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether I Live or die. For to me, living is Christ and dying is gain. Now, if I'm to go on living in the body, this will mean productive work for me, yet I don't know which I prefer. I feel torn between the two because I have a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more vital for your sake that I remain in the body. And since I am sure of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for the sake of your progress and joy in the faith. So that what you can be proud of may increase because of me in Christ Jesus when I return to you. Okay. Verse 12, Paul says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that my situation has actually turned out to advance the gospel. The whole imperial guard and everyone else knows that I am in prison for the sake of Christ. And most of the brothers and sisters having confidence in the Lord because of my imprisonment, now more than ever, dare to speak the word fearlessly. So what is Paul's situation that has the gospel exploding forth? It's his imprisonment. He says prison or imprisonment three times in a row, verses 13, 14, and 17. And because, this is just the paradox here, because he's in chains, the gospel is going forth. So 
The messenger is locked in. He's chained to a guard, but the message is still advancing. So in other words, you can lock up the messenger, but you cannot lock up the message. And what we're seeing right here is one of the most profound truths of Christianity. And it's this, our victories often disguise themselves as defeats. Our victories often disguise themselves as defeats. How so? Well, I want you to think back to the 12 disciples, all right? If you're familiar with the Gospels, essentially, when Jesus came on the scene initially, he was not seen as anything particularly special. He was seen as a rabbi. That's the most common title that we read of Jesus, rabbi. And um, all rabbis essentially had disciples, and disciples were students. They were learners. And the, the way that the school process worked was that these disciples, these students would follow the rabbi around everywhere and they would learn from him and then they would go on and they would be rabbis. That's why you were a disciple. So you could go on and be a rabbi following in the footsteps of the rabbi you trained under. But why did these 12 guys decide to follow Jesus in particular? Well, I want to show you a passage out of John's gospel. And this is in the beginning. This is in chapter one. And what has just happened is he's slowly, you know, he's picking out his 12 and he's gathering to them. And Philip, who becomes one of the disciples, has a brother named Nathaniel. And Philip believes that Jesus is the Messiah, the guy they've all been waiting for, the promised Jewish Messiah who's going to set everything right. So he runs off and he grabs his brother and he tells him, Come and see, all right? Now, when Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. They haven't met yet, all right? Jesus just said that. And Nathanael says, how do you know me? And Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. So we don't know what Nathanael was doing. I imagine he was praying. I imagine he was probably pleading with God. And, and when Jesus says this to him, he realizes, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, this isn't just any rabbi. And look at what he says. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. So the 12 followed Jesus because they believed that he was the promised Jewish Messiah. But here's the thing. The disciples didn't really know what they were getting into at first. Um, they were looking, all the Jews, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all the religious leaders, they were looking for the Jewish Messiah, but they believed that the Jewish Messiah was going to come in the form of a conqueror, warrior, king. They were looking for a military Messiah to overthrow Rome and to uh, reinstate Israel as a world superpower as it had been back in the days of David, okay? Now, the disciples lived under the rule of the Roman Empire. And what did the empire do? What had it done for hundreds of years? It conquered forcefully, violently, mercilessly. And so the Jews really believed that when Messiah came, this was going to be it. This was going to be the day of the Lord that was promised about in the Old Testament, but they thought that this was going to be a physical, earthly, military victory. And that is not what happened, is it? That's not what happened. 
So when the disciples saw their king, their rabbi, get arrested and then crucified by the Romans, what did they do? They scattered. They ran. And what did they think? They thought it was over. They thought it was over. They went back to their boats. You know, we mark uh, Good Friday as a holiday, one of our most holy days in the Christian faith. And if you grew up Catholic or Episcopalian, what did you mark it with? Who are my Catholic girls? Ashism, where, where, where are they? Cross on your forehead, yeah, that marks Good Friday. What did you do on Saturday? Nothing, right? You unfroze the ham, you made the side dishes, got the Easter baskets out, right? Saturday is just pre-Easter. It's just Easter Eve. But if you think back to the time when Christ was crucified, this was the darkest day for the disciples. This was their darkest day. Because Jesus had been killed and not just killed, but killed in the most shameful way possible, executed like a criminal in an honor and shame-driven society. The disciples were a joke. They were a total joke. The Jewish religious leaders and the Romans were mocking them because they lost. They were wrong until Sunday morning. And what happened on Easter Sunday, I want you to think about this, was so monumental that it split the calendar in two. And 2,021 years later, we still divide time as before Jesus lived and after he rose again. And it started as a defeat. It started as a defeat. And I just think this might be a word for someone tonight that our greatest victories often come disguised as defeat. When Johnny Erickson Tata was 17 years old, she dove into shallow water and she broke her neck and she has lived as a paraplegic for over 50 years. Defeat, right? No, victory because what has happened to her has actually served to advance the gospel and now she has a worldwide ministry and she's written over a hundred books and she has albums and she paints and there is nothing this woman can't do. She has more honorary degrees and doctorates than you can count. That is victory. That is victory. Jim and Elizabeth Elliot were missionaries in Ecuador trying to reach an unreached people group for the gospel. They were known to be particularly remote and very, very difficult to breach. Well, Jim started to make progress, but then a group of natives uh, attacked him and killed him, leaving Elizabeth with um, a toddler as a widow. Defeat, right? No, victory, because Elizabeth took her baby girl and she went and lived among the Indians who killed her husband, serving them in the name of Jesus. And her selfless, compassionate act of sacrificial love so undid them that they went on to worship Christ, develop a written language, get scriptures written in their language. And now thousands of missionaries serve around the globe because of what Elizabeth did. That is victory. 
My own father was diagnosed with throat cancer, specifically on his tonsil. And I have never seen a grown man in so much pain. Because of the radiation and... Um, because of the radiation, his mouth just exploded into open, weeping ulcers. And he lost a fourth of his body weight. A fourth of his body weight. Defeat, right? No. Victory. Because my dad, who still does not have his sense of taste back, who does not have a thyroid anymore, and has a difficult time articulating his words, says that it's the best thing that ever happened to him because while he was strapped down to that table, he met Jesus. He met Jesus. Our victories look like defeats oftentimes to the rest of the world. And that is what Paul wants the Philippian believers to know. Not only has the entire imperial guard in Caesar's household heard about the gospel, but Paul's chains, his chains have given some kind of crazy courage to most of the brothers and sisters in the Lord who now all of a sudden more than any other time are daring all the more to share the gospel without fear. I just want to know why. Like, you know where that's landing you, right? Like, you've heard this doesn't end well for people who go against Nero, right? Like, you know Paul's in jail. Why is this giving you confidence? Because when someone's willing to suffer for something, that gives it a whole lot of extra weight. It's really, really easy to sing God's praises when everything is good. But when Johnny Erickson Tata does, man, I stop and look. I want to know the vision Elizabeth Elliot had of Jesus that sent her back to her husband's murderers with her baby girl. I want that vision. I want that vision. We worship a crucified savior. We live by dying. We gain by giving. And at the end of it all, when we have poured it all out and we have breathed our last breath, we will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And it will be worth it. It'll be worth it. It'll be worth it. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do so out of love because they know I am placed here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely because they think they can cause trouble for me in my imprisonment. What is the result? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is being proclaimed and in this I rejoice. Man, I want some of what he's having. Anybody else have to put limits on their Instagram because this whole comparison thing just gets to be a little bit too much. Anybody else? I'll go first. Right? And so what's going on here? So there, there is a very real thing. Paul was getting attention. 
All right, and, and if you did the homework, you, you saw that I make an argument that these are actually Christians, right? That, these, that I really do believe these are sincere believers who, who believe in Christ. They just want a little piece of Paul's attention. And so what they're doing is they're preaching Christ out of envy and rivalry, and they're trying to make him jealous. And he's like, whatever, whatever. Christ is preached. I don't care how he's preached. I don't care where he's preached. I don't care when he's preached, but Christ is preached and I'm going to rejoice. And then he says he is going to continue to rejoice. Why? He knows that this will turn out for his deliverance, for his deliverance. Let me tell you what Paul is doing right here. Paul is being a cheeky little monkey. Paul is being very, very cheeky. And I'm going to tell you why. Now, if you remember back during the introduction, We talked about a couple of the titles that Paul very deliberately uses for Jesus. Do you remember those? He calls Jesus Kyrios and Soter. And you remember that those titles were not reserved for Jesus. In fact, those titles went first to the emperor. The emperor was the Kyrios, the Lord. He was the savior or deliverer, the Soter. And so what Paul was doing was taking these titles that were very, very, very commonly, like all the time at every single public event when they were called to rise in honor of the Kyrios and Soter Nero, he's taking these titles and he's making a very bold statement that, no, no, your Kyrios, your Soter, that is Christ. So I want to show you what Paul is doing with the Greek language here. This is where he's getting all cheeky. He says, I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. What he is actually saying is, I know this will turn out for my soteria. Sound familiar? Sound familiar? Soteria can mean salvation. It can also mean deliverance, same Greek word. And soter can be translated savior or deliverer, same thing in the Greek. And we also know that Philippi was famous for its imperial cult worship. They had placed all of their emperors, all of their Caesars up as God. So Nero was the soter, and he was the only one that could offer soteria. All right, and never had this been more true for Paul than when he was in his current situation, in chains, in Rome, chained to a a imperial guard, one of Caesar's personal bodyguards, very likely, in Nero's city, most likely in one of Nero's palaces. And so the way Nero saw it, and I will tell you, we will get to him in a later lesson, he was crazy. He was crazy crazy. He did crazy things. But the way Nero saw it, he was the only one that could offer soteria for Paul because he was the soter. But Paul is saying, oh no, Nero, no, 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 no. My soteria, my deliverance, that comes through Christ who is the true and only soter. This is a deliberate stab at Nero designed to reinforce the confidence that the Philippians had in Christ. He says, it is my confident hope that I will be no way, that I will um, in no way be ashamed. And what he's doing right here is he is contrasting two opposing ideas. He's talking about their confidence But he's also talking about shame. In an honor-shame-driven society, we need to think about um, what it meant to worship a crucified Savior. This was completely shameful 
to the Greeks and the Romans and uh, the social circles that they ran in. But Paul is refuting that idea. He says he will in no way be ashamed. And we will see this theme come up uh, in Romans as well. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. That's because so many other people were. And he was saying, this, this is the same principle at work. Our greatest victories often come disguised as defeat. Our greatest honor comes through what the world would consider shame. And he will not be ashamed of the gospel of Christ. He goes on to say, but with complete boldness, even now as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether I live or die. For to me, living is Christ and dying is gain. Now, if I am to go on living in the body, this will mean productive work for me. Yet I don't know which I prefer. I feel torn between the two. I have a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more vital for your sake that I remain in the body. And since I am sure of this, I know that I will remain and will continue with all of you for the sake of your progress and joy in the faith. He says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. To live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul is bulletproof. He is just bulletproof. He is so consumed with Christ that life is found in serving Christ and the joy that comes from doing his will. But to die, that's to be with Christ. And that's not just better. He says it's better by far. I thought it was really important in the homework to offer up a reminder that death is not our friend and that we should not long for death. God did not create us for death. God created us for life. And in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul calls death the enemy. And in John 11, Jesus wept. Jesus wept in the face of Lazarus's death. And here's the truth, all right? Jesus didn't come so we wouldn't be afraid of death. That was not the point. Jesus came to defeat death. And so the win is not death. That is not the win. Death is the enemy. The win is the resurrection. You see, we're not putting our hope in heaven. That's not where our hope lies. Our hope lies in the resurrection. Our hope lies in Jesus's return when we will be resurrected with him in new glorified bodies. We are not going to be at one with the universe in this peaceful state of nirvana. That is heresy. We are going to live on a physical earth that is renewed. We will have physical things to do. We will have physical work. We will have brand new, immortal, physical bodies. And Jesus will be with us in a physical capacity. This is our hope. And that is a central doctrine of Christianity. And then Paul's language is very interesting here. Paul determines that it's vital that he stay with the believers and to go on living in the body. And that is because he is consumed with sharing the gospel. And he is far more consumed with their eternal salvation than he is with his own comfort. And that is just so convicting for me. He views telling people about Jesus to be the absolute most pressing 
pressing issue of the day. And then he says, so that what you can be proud of may increase because of me in Jesus Christ when I come back to you. What is he talking about when he says what you can be proud of? So this is where Greek gets weird because word order doesn't matter and you can translate different things different ways. So a a more literal translation of this, a more literal rendering would be to say, so that your boasting in Christ Jesus in me may abound through my returning to you again. So that your boasting in Christ Jesus in me may abound through my returning to you again. This is a really, this is actually a really tricky passage. Um, and I think the key to understanding it is to go back to the honor and shame culture in which Paul lived. And so I just researched this a little bit more this week and I found something very, very interesting. So um, a person's highest goal in this culture during this time period was to receive not just honor, but public honor. All right. You wanted to be praised and you wanted to be praised publicly. And there was, because of this, a expected socially appropriate amount of boasting. An expected socially appropriate amount of boasting. It was much better if someone boasted about you, but there was socially accepted boasting. But humility was not a virtue at all. Like humility was humiliating. And no one, like if you were humble, you were weak, you were, you know, like you were, that just the slaves were, were, humble and and low, but you were constantly trying to climb and be exalted. And so um, to give you just a little bit of an example of how normal social boasting was, a lot of what we know about ancient ancient Judaism comes from a Jewish historian named Josephus. And he starts his work by giving his family's entire priestly lineage, and it's long, down his father's side of the family, his royal lineage on his mother's side, even longer. He goes on to boast about his father's accomplishments, his accolades. He talks about his own grades, all right? This goes on and on and on. So I, I believe that when Paul is speaking about boasting, I think a better translation is to hang on to the word boasting. Um, he is using the language of the day to convey an idea. So I think that the assumption is that the Philippians will, of course, boast about Paul because he's Paul the apostle and he's coming to spend time with them. And so Paul would even expect them to boast of him because this is part of their social currency. And so I think that what he's doing is he is saying, if you must boast in me upon my return, boast in the Christ in me. Because Paul says in other letters, there is nothing good in him save Christ. And so I'm, I'm fairly certain that that's what's going on here is that Paul is just speaking the language of the day and he is saying, I know you're gonna boast in me, so just make it about the Christ in me. Okay, moving on. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or whether I remain absent, I should hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, contending side by side for the faith of the gospel and not being intimidated in any way by your opponents. This is a sign of their destruction, but of your salvation, a sign which is from God. For it has been granted to you not only to believe in Christ, but also to suffer for him. Since you are 
are encountering the same conflict that you saw me face and now hear that I am facing. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort provided by love, any fellowship in the spirit, any affection or mercy, complete my joy and be of the same mind by having the same love, united in one spirit and having one purpose." Instead of being motivated by selfish ambition or vanity, each of you should, in humility, this is jarring language, be moved to treat one another as more important than yourself. Each of you should be concerned not only about your own interests, but about the interests of others as well. So let's talk about what it looks like to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel, because that's what the whole rest of our section is talking about. Now, if you um, if you read the digging deeper section at the end of your homework this week, you read about the Greek word politeustha. Politeustha. This is a word describing citizenship, which is a really big deal in Philippi because it was a Roman colony, and so they knew all about citizenship and the benefits and the responsibilities that came with it. Now, most of our English translations look a whole lot like the NET, which is what's in the back of your workbook. Uh, Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. But the New Living Translation, I think, actually grasps the the um, the the meaning of politeustha a little bit better. It says, above all, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ. And the reason that I like this rendering is because we always need to go back to how did the original audience hear this? We cannot discern what it means for us until we know what it meant for them. And when they heard politeustha, they heard citizenship. Conduct yourselves like a citizen, but they're not understanding it in terms of Roman citizenship. They're understanding it in terms of placing themselves under the rule and the reign of Christ. And so why did Paul use this language? I think this was a comfort to them because you have to remember if they were not worshiping Nero as Soter and Curios, if they were instead worshiping Jesus, there was a whole lot of exclusion. I mean, some of them could potentially have had their citizenship revoked. I think that was quite likely. And so this is a comfort to them because they are hearing a direct order to live as citizens. They they put a value on citizenship, but they have a higher citizenship. They have a true and better king and emperor. And, And it's a reminder, I think, that this world isn't our home because it's not our home. Because things aren't as they are supposed to be. And honestly, we will never find pure rest and pure comfort in this world. We just won't because we're not made for this world. And Paul wanted the Philippians to remember that they're ambassadors on a mission. They are ambassadors of Christ. They are envoys. They are diplomats occupying foreign territory. They're in enemy territory. And so are we. We're envoys sent by the king to deliver the best news ever. And while we live in this world, we're never to forget that we are not of this world. And so we are not to conduct ourselves as citizens of this world. We're citizens of heaven. And so what does that look like? Paul says, standing firm in one spirit with one mind, contending side by side for the faith of the gospel and by not being intimidated in any way by your opposition, our unity in Christ is our strongest testimony to the world. I wanna show you something. 
on the night that he was arrested and then crucified, John records this big, beautiful, robust prayer in John 17. It's one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. And this is Jesus pouring out his heart for the Father. And he's just been praying for his disciples. And then he turns it and opens it up. He says, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me so that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. And then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Jesus' plea to the Father on the night that he died was that his believers would be united. Why? Because it's our greatest witness to the world. I don't know how it works. I don't know how it works. But when the world sees us banding together, and racing toward the lost and hurting in love. Man, they sit up and they take notice. This is how the world will know that Jesus is the Son of God. When we set our differences aside for the sake of the kingdom, and when we love each other instead of compete with each other. Paul says, by not being intimidated in any way by your opponents, how did the Roman soldiers and how did Nero rule? Fear, intimidation. But if to live is Christ and to die is gain and the worst they can do is just send them off to glory a little bit sooner, what can they do to them? Like there is no reason to be anxious. There is no reason to be fear. If we know who we serve and where we're going, I mean, they've got nothing on us. They've got nothing on us. I'll tell you the most frightening person in the world is a person who's just not afraid to die. No fear. Because you can't defeat that person. You can't take anything away from them. Paul says this will be a sign of their destruction, but of your salvation. Our unity, our unity, our cooperation, our love, our getting along with each other is a sign of the enemy's destruction, but of their salvation. So in our text tonight, um, Paul uses a lot of warfare imagery, actually. He said that what has happened to him has actually served to advance the gospel. When, when, when you do a, a little bit of a history of a word study on that word advance, um, it's a uh, prokope, and we see the same word in verse 25 when Paul says he will remain in the body for their progress, their advancement in the faith. And so what this word carries is a nuance, a, a military nuance of advancing or progressing, a kind of like a slow march forward. Um, in its earliest use, I love this, the word meant um, to make headway in spite of blows. All right, to like get knocked down but then get up again because they're never going to keep you down. I should never try to do that. I should, and now it's on tape. Okay, well, what are we going to do? Um, and so one of the things that, this is pretty cool, that made the Roman army so um, fearsome and so formidable was their unity, okay? Um, they had unity and purpose, all right? 
unity and purpose, and they had unity in formation. So this is called the testudo formation. And this is how the Roman soldiers would advance when they came upon an enemy camp, when they were um, invading a fortified city. This is what they would do. It was developed in the third century BC. And as the army advanced, they would make these formations. And you can see that they've got like a tortoise shell thing, tortoise shell thing going, right? And so um, no arrows can get through their, well, their shield wall, right? And then they've got them over their heads and and this is how they would advance. And they would advance slowly, but steadily. And then they had these double-edged swords that were short, which was revolutionary warfare because the most of the, uh, all of the, um, of the uh, societies and cultures and kingdoms that they were advancing on used these big giant swords that were dull on one side and sharp on the other. And, and they were heavy and they were hard to maneuver, but they had these short, little, short, short, deadly sharp, double-bladed, double-sided swords. And as they would advance, they would go like this through the um, through the the lines and the shields. I'm not making this up. And and their swords were so, so sharp, they would go right through armor. And I mean, they were just undefeatable. And it worked because they never broke ranks until the command was given. They never divided. They stayed together. And as cities and villages, watch this now, as cities and villages saw the Romans advancing, procopaying toward them, it was a sign of their destruction destruction and of Rome's deliverance. Paul is using all kinds of warfare language that would have made a whole lot of sense to the original audience. He says, for it has been granted to you to not only believe in Christ, but also to suffer for him. That is a hard word. That is a hard word. Paul saw suffering for Christ as a gift. And this is not unique to Paul In Psalm 119, verse 67 says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I obey your word. Psalm 119, 71 says, It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Psalm 34, 18 says, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. He saves those who are crushed in spirit. How is suffering a gift? Because there is a special nearness, a special comfort given to those who suffer deeply and who suffer well. There is a special multiplication of the Lord's presence when we are in our our darkest times. And I've experienced it. And I know some of you have too. And my dad, whose life will never be the same because cancer probably knocked 20 years off of it, met Jesus on that table while they burned the cancer out of his throat. And he says, I'd do it again. I'd do it all again. There's a special nearness given to us of the spirit when we suffer. And finally, Paul ends by telling them what it looks like to live as citizens of heaven, to conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. He says, therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort provided by by love, 
any fellowship with the Spirit, any affection or mercy, complete my joy and be of the same mind by having the same love united in one spirit and having one purpose. In other words, get over yourself already. Get over yourself, Rebecca. Get over yourself. It is not about us. It is not about us. We are not at the center of this plan. And when we live our lives as though we are, when we make ourselves our own God, the only problem is no one else gets the memo. Am I right? No one else wants to cooperate. It's not about us. What a miserable way to live. It is about Christ. It's about Christ. It's about living our lives for Christ. It's about getting the overview effect and getting this image of Jesus in his glory. If we could just see it, we would be ruined. We would be wrecked forever. And the only focus we would have is to preach Christ, preach Christ, preach Christ, preach Christ until our dying breath. He says, instead of being motivated by selfish ambition or vanity, each of you should, in humility, be moved to treat one another as more important than yourself. This is a healthy self-view. This is not making yourself a doormat. Each of you should be concerned not only about your own interests, but about the interests of others as well. You know what happens when we make ourselves more interested in others? Oh, we get out of our own heads for a minute. I love that. I just cannot stand to be in my head. What a miserable place. I would not wish five minutes in my head on my worst enemy. I really wouldn't. I really wouldn't. I'd be very cruel. All right, let's take her home. What can we learn from our text tonight? We've got to ask God for a paradigm-shifting overview, effect, vision of Jesus. And he wants to give it to us. He wants to give it to us. We need to learn how to live with a heavenly perspective. Because when we are living life with a heavenly perspective, it doesn't matter if someone cuts us off. Who cares? It doesn't matter if someone else gets that thing you wanted. Who cares? doesn't matter if someone else's husband gets this thing and they get to do that thing and you're over here. It doesn't matter because this is going away. This is all going away. But the eternal thing, the everlasting thing, is life in the presence of Christ. And in Christ, our greatest victories often come disguised as defeat. And in Christ, we remember that suffering is granted to his beloved as a gift. Because when we glorify Christ in our suffering, it actually serves to advance the gospel. And last, our unity is our greatest witness to a watching world. And this world is hurting and broken and scared and desperate and lost and perishing and we have the answer. Like, we have the secret. We know the solution. We know what they need, and we have it. And so we pray, and we ask God to use us for his glory. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, oh, this is just a hard word tonight, but it's also a gorgeous word. Because God, I just think, I just think being able to live unmotivated by selfish ambition or vanity, but in humility, being able to treat one another is more important than ourselves. I think thinking about the interests of others over myself just sounds lovely. To be able to just be happy for people sincerely all the time and to take no grotesque pleasure when someone else suffers, God, we want that. We want that freedom. And so, God, we can't have this unless you give it to us. So give it to us, Lord, in an ever-increasing measure. Help us to live our lives for you. Help us to be unified in heart and mind and purpose. And God, may everything we go through in this life, good, bad, and indifferent, actually serve to advance the gospel. Because we want to be able to say, Lord, with Paul, that to live is Christ and to die is gain. Let it be, Lord Jesus. Amen.